The guitar sounded great, man. Right? That, <laughs> the bass sounded great, too. Everybody else sounded great. <laughs> I just never hear the guitars. That was awesome. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Oh, boy. <laughs> I say so many things. You're bound to say something stupid from time to time. Somebody says, you say many things stupid. Kathleen, I don't know if you can hear me. I'm, I'm full of congestion. Okay, so I'm going to try and get through this. And uh, if I have to stop for a second and swallow something and take some water, just bear with me. I don't know if you can hear me coughing and you know, snorting down there. Um, Kathleen walked over and she says to me, I don't know if you want to blow that out before you go up. <laughs> this is exactly what she said to me. I don't know if you want to blow that out before you go up there. You know that could be distracting. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said to her, you're right. Do you have any tissue? <laughs> and she said, I mean the candle. That's why you saw me laughing in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. I just, so I'm so sorry. <coughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that's funny. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I sure did. I ate a lot. My parents send their love. Um, they, had a, they, they look great. They look healthy. Um, they look vibrant. I knew Dad was doing better because the whole time I was there, he gave me a rough time. I knew mom was doing better because she told me all of your each and individual family histories. As only Sandra could do. Let me encourage you to come back tonight, this evening at 6 a.m. Or 6 p.m., not 6 a.m. The cold. 6 p.m. Uh, for our prayer, our monthly prayer service. Uh, the last prayer service was a true blessing. So many people have come back and have just shared how much that meant to them. It's just being together. It's just praying together. God commands us as a church to do that. We are obeying God in that. So just let me invite you to come back. The format is going to be the same. Uh, we're going to pray for some ministry uh, issues that have come up, some, some certain things that have come up. But the main part of our service is going to be laying hands on people who are uh, sick, uh, some who might be struggling with sin, let me encourage you to come and pray for God's involvement in your life to help you overcome sin and struggles. You don't have to share those for, in particular with the church. You can just come forward and just say, can you pray for me? And do it in unspoken. If you don't want to share, you don't have to. But don't miss out on the blessing of, of fulfilling God's commandment to come and pray together as a church. Uh, also, uh, maybe some of you want to pray for uh, wayward family members. Uh, this is a wonderful season where we're going to be around family more than usual. And there's going to be people who come into our homes, uh, who come in and um, need to know the gospel. And you want to maybe pray for God's Holy Spirit to open their hearts. You could be the best speaker and preacher and you might know God's word like the back of your hand. But that doesn't mean anything until the Holy Spirit opens up their heart. And so all of, our, all of our plotting is in vain unless God's Holy Spirit opens up that person's heart. But it's not hopeless. 
And so come tonight, pray. Let's pray for those. Let's pray for you. Let's, let's name them by name. I mean, what, what harm could come to them that's greater than the harm of not knowing Jesus? So it's better that they know we're here tonight praying for them. That's a big thing. It's a big deal. So I want to invite you to come back tonight. It, it is a church, uh, it is a church responsibility for you to pray with us and to be together with us. Well, let me give you a little introduction to what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. We're going to be observing for the first time in our church's history that I know of, the Advent season. And the Advent season is simply, as Kathleen has already told you, it is the season where the church looks back at Christ's coming. And we're going to have four sermons this month. The first sermon, which is today, is Watch and Wait. The second sermon next week will be on preparing for the Messiah. <clears throat> the third will be witnessing. And finally, the fourth will be rejoicing. I have a couple objectives that I, I hope to complete by the end of this sermon series. And it's, it's not just me going through the motions. It's my hope is that you and I and our families will observe these objectives, that we will take these uh, into, our, into consideration throughout the Christmas season. I want to say to you, we're not going to try, we're not here to try and guilt you uh, to feel bad about buying Christmas presents or, or having Christmas trees or enjoying a little bit more cookies or eggnogs for those Presbyterians. Uh, we're not here to guilt you about enjoying the Christmas season. It's a wonderful time. Don't be, don't be a Christian Scrooge, okay? That's not what we're here to do. You know what a Christian Scrooge is? Oh, Santa Claus isn't the reason for the season. Jesus is. We know. We know. But be lovable and likable during the Christmas season. Be filled with joy. So our goal is not to shame you for enjoying going out to the mall. Some people are masochistic and like that. Our goal is to help you focus, all of us, to focus on Christ. That's it. Let me give you these objectives. Number one, to give Christ his due glory and honor for the Christmas season. I want us to think about giving Christ his due honor for the Christmas season. I want you to think every time you see the nativity that God came in the flesh to die for the sins of the world. He didn't come to a throne, but to a manger. Give God his glory in this season. Number two, I want you to give the right perspective. Give right, I want to give right perspective on the Christmas season in a secular context. We need, to, we need a right perspective in this country on what's happening. Now, that's not to shame us, but it is to say we need to refocus and say, what is the purpose of this season? It is not Black Friday. I went out with my, it's a tradition now, we go out with my brother and sister-in-law to, to Walmart for Black Friday, but it starts on Thursday night. And it's fun because we get to watch everybody else act crazy. Stephanie and I, we're smart. We just buy it all online. Uh, we don't want to go fight at, at Walmart. But to see, to see our country focused on things, there's nothing wrong with buying gifts. But I know that the focus of so many people, if not most of the people there, is getting gifts and not on Christ. 
Number three, I hope to explain the meaning of Christ's coming. What, what does it mean that God has come in the flesh? What does that mean for us? Why is Christ different than these other gods who claim to be gods, but they are really no gods at all? It is significant that God has come in the flesh. And finally, I want to bridge the context of Christ's coming with the hope of his return. I want to bridge the context. What does it mean to look back? Christians, we don't only look back. We also look forward. So, I want us to focus on these things. <clears throat> I drove to Nashville last week. And if you have ever driven on a long road trip and you have children, you hear the laughter from the Mack family. He's done it. If you've ever driven on a long road trip with children, especially children under five, you know that they ask a certain question a whole lot. What is that question? Are we there yet? I thought it was cliche. I now know better. We did not get to Port St. Lucie before Claire had asked me ten times, are we there yet? It takes so long. Are we there yet? Am I, am I joking? Well, you were asleep. So, luckily our van only lets me listen to Frozen, so I had to listen to Frozen for 14 hours while Stephanie slept. No, she, you stayed awake a little bit. Um, so, they ask, are we there yet? And my response would always be, no, just wait. And, and by no, just wait, what I really meant was, just shut up. Just shut up. Just don't say anymore because daddy has to drive. But that's not what scripture means when it talks about waiting upon the Lord. Let me give you a definition of what we're going to talk about this morning. Talk about the word wait. When scripture talks about the word wait, those who wait upon the Lord, the concept means something like to hope in God, number one, Okay, it's, it, is a, it is not to just be still. Christians are too good at being still. Wait does not mean be still. It means to hope in God. Specifically to hope in the God who fulfills his promises. So we know that the God that we worship, the one in whom we wait, we know he's going to come through. It calls us to look to eagerly look to the future because of what God has done in the past. That is really the definition of the word wait. When scripture tells us to wait on the Lord, it means the concept behind it is looking forward to the future with eager expectation based upon what God has already done in the past. People ask me from time to time, how come God doesn't do miracles anymore? Number one, I'm not so sure he doesn't. But number two, and more importantly, God has given us the greatest miracle he could ever give. The resurrection of his son. You say, but I didn't see it. I wasn't there. 
But it's in the hope of his resurrection that all of us live and hope for the future resurrection. This Christmas season, I want to call you to wait upon the Lord in the hope of his salvation based upon what God has already done. Let's pray. Father, we look at your promises that you've made to us in Scripture, and we hope in you. We don't wait in no one or nothing, but we wait in the one who fulfills his promises, Lord. We trust in you. We know that your word never fails, that you cannot lie, that you all your word comes true. And so in this Christmas season, as we remember the past, you promised that you would send your son to the world. We see that your people were eagerly waiting for Messiah we thank you so, so much for the, the sweet story of Simeon, who you promised by your Holy Spirit would not die before he would see your salvation in Messiah. We look back to those moments, those real moments in history that happened in a real day, in a real moment in time, and we are encouraged that what you have promised about the future will come to pass. And so this Christmas season, Lord, we look back at Jesus and your promise, and we hope and wait for your return. We love you, Lord. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Isaiah 64, <clears throat> 1 through 7. Uh, this morning, we had the Mac family come up and read. How cute was that, by the way? That boy stole the show, didn't he? My goodness. He was too cute. Girls, you did great, too. <clears throat> Let's read our scripture. I'm going to break this up, so I want you to hold your Bible there, but I want to break this passage up into three, three themes this morning. The first one is going to be wait. The second one is going to be looking back, and the third is going to be looking forward. But I want to begin with the general concept of what Isaiah is calling us to do. So we're going to look at the first two verses, and then I want to give some explanation. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The word rend means to tear open. That the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood. Have you ever seen, whenever you're trying to light a fire, we don't light a lot of fires down here in South Florida, but when you do light a fire for that one night that it drops below 50, when you do light a fire outside, you have to use kindling, or you're not going to get it to light. And kindling catches fire quickly and consumes quickly and ignites everything around it. So th this is the imagery here. When fire kindles brushwood, a quick ignition, a violent ignition, and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isaiah is trying to give us a description of what it would be like to be around God, to be in the presence of God. If God were to come, the skies would have to be ripped open. The, the whole world would quake. 
The fire of his glory is an all-consuming fire. This is a violent, violent thing for God to make his presence known in the world. The question, though, that we might be asking is, why would he ask for this? It sounds absolutely terrifying, doesn't it? The, the sky being ripped open, wouldn't that scare you? The world beginning to quake? His glory consuming the very atmosphere that we breathe? And the question that you might ask is, why would anyone want that? Does Isaiah even know what he's asking for? This is so violent. And all of these poetic images mean something. The rending is the violence, the violence of God in breaking into an unholy world. You know what happens to darkness whenever light comes into it? It is killed. It is destroyed. Fire kindling brushwood, brushwood, it's fast, it's consuming. Boiling water kills everything in it. Nothing can live in its heat. When we went up to, when we, what, what is the temperature? 212 Fahrenheit, is that what water boils at? Where, you, yes, all right, good. Two people know that. I don't feel so bad now. Well, three, I knew it. Um, so when we went to Costa Rica, the higher you go up on a volcano, the hotter the hot springs get. I don't understand why, but that's what happens. So they had temperatures. And about as hot as you could stand, it was 130 degrees. I can't even imagine being it. I put my toe in 130 degrees. It was painful. 212 will kill anything in it. That's why when we go on boil water alerts, we have to boil our water because it kills and consumes every living organism in it. And then finally, trembling. Trembling is an involuntary body quaking from the terror that's inside a person. It is seizing. It is a shaking. We are inside. We are Inside is not right. We're not at peace. This is terrifying. Why would Isaiah ask for such a thing? It doesn't seem to be something that any person would want. But I want to answer why Isaiah is asking for this. First... Isaiah is asking for this, and he knows that God comes because every time God's manifestation happens, it is absolutely terrifying. It is an awesome experience, however. Joel 2.11 says, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. The word awesome sounds, it's like onomatopoeia. Do you know what that word means? An onomatopoeia is, it's like cough. Because it sounds like, the word sounds like what it does. Cough. I can do that really well today. But when you hear awesome, it's what your mouth does when you see it. Oh, it gapes open. And Joel says, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And then he asks one other question. Who can endure it? That's how awesome it is. 
This is so awesome because God's glorious light is juxtaposed by our hideous darkness. I want you to understand it's not one really bright light amongst other bright lights. It is the glorious light of God in the darkness of this world. That is real physical light that we will be burnt with, that our eyes will not be able to see, a heavenly light. But it is a moral purity. It is a goodness. It is everything in one essence that terrifies and destroys all darkness. Isaiah is asking for God to come against his enemies, however, but not against his people. When God comes to his world, there are two types of people in that moment. Those who will be consumed and those who will endure. And so why Isaiah is asking God to come is because he is certain that by God's mercy he can stand in that day. Verse 2, the nations will tremble. In other words, everyone except God's people will be the ones quaking, not God's people. Isaiah tells us in verse 9, he says in his request for God's coming, that when he comes, he will remember his people. Yes, it will be awesome. Yes, it will be terrifying. Yes, you will be protected by his mercy. Finally, Isaiah waits upon the Lord so that he might vindicate his name among those who profane it. In the particular context in which Isaiah is prophesying, he is prophesying during the period of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a particularly brutal people. Their leader, Tiglath-Pilassar III, would hold entire nations accountable for the sins of their kings. And so the entire nation, if a king went back on his word, the entire nation would pay for it. He, they were a particularly terrible group of people. In fact, when Jonah is sent to Nineveh, he completely hates the Ninevites because of their brutality. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it's why he doesn't want to go. Because of how brutal these people were. And Isaiah is saying something I think so many of us can identify with. It is God, please, you hear your enemies, vindicate your name. You hear how the world mocks you. You see how the world treats your people. 100,000 Christians were martyred last year alone. They are the most persecuted people on the planet. Christians, not a race, but Christians of every nation. Why are they persecuted? Simply because they are God's People, in many, many countries around the world, 
It is illegal to proselytize, to tell others of the goodness of Christ, to tell others about the Christian faith. Christians are under grave persecution. Your God is mocked. This very nation has begun a very scary descent to mocking God. And his people cry out, vindicate your name. Why? Because when that sky tears open, and those mountains begin to quake, and his glory begins to consume, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't you long for that? Don't you want to see it? Isaiah wanted it. And Isaiah speaks about those and against those who reject him. He describes the the folly of the world and how the world seeks after idols rather than the living God. The the scriptures love to put juxtaposition of an idol and the living God. Here are two two extremes. One is mouthless, soulless, lifeless. The other one is life itself. This one's dead. This one's living. Dagon, the false god of the Philistines, falls down. An idol falls down. Broken face before the Ark of the Covenant to demonstrate that God is the living God. When God gives his name to Moses, he defines his name as I am. In other words, every other God is not. If our God's name is I am, every other God's name is is not. And it is mind-blowing that anyone in this life would put their hope in things that they carve themselves. We have different idols today. They're not all graven. Some are graven. We worship false things. We praise false things. Human beings are incurably worshipful and they will give their worship to someone or something. But it is folly that anyone would worship anything but the living God. Listen to how Isaiah, I love this. I love the, 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 the sarcasm and the, I love how reasonable Isaiah is being. In, in chapter 44, listen to what he says. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. They give you nothing. So not only are you nothing for believing in them, they give you nothing. Your bank account says zero. Their witnesses neither say nor know. They may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? 
Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are the only human, are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. In other words, I want you to follow the process. The point that the prophet is making is that this fashioning of the idol is premeditated. It is not accidental. This person knows what he is doing. Every one of us knows what we are doing when we begin to fashion idols. He takes his time. Listen to what it says. He, he takes his cutting tool. He works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He hasn't even got to making the idol yet. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for a man, he takes a part of it, warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread, Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns on the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes it into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Can he be any more descriptive of how ridiculous it is to wait upon a lifeless idol? But he tells us that those who wait upon the Lord, remember the word Lord, And you see it in all caps, Lord, Yahweh, I am, his covenant name, the one who is. Those who wait upon the Lord, he will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I ask you this morning. Are you waiting upon idols of wood and steel? Or are you waiting upon the Lord? Don't move past that question too quickly. Because how you answer this question determines whether or not when the Lord comes, you may wait upon his terror or you may wait upon his glory. Which one is it? Who are you trusting in? Who will be your shield at the coming wrath of God? The passage further tells us to look back. To look back. Why does Isaiah call out to the Lord to come again? Because he's come before. If he's come before, he can come again. God has not died. God lives. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And there is nothing that happens outside of his sovereignty and providence. He is God. 
And so Isaiah can call and wait upon the Lord in this moment because he knows God has already come. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you. In other words, all the idols, every idol that has ever been made has done nothing. But the God who does not form or will not be formed by human hands has made himself known. We, we went to Tennessee, and, and in Tennessee, there's not a lot of lights on the south end. And you, you, you kind of get to see the sky. In South Florida, we don't get to see the sky. There's just there's lights for 300 miles when you get to South Florida. Just lights everywhere. The whole coastline is lit up. And in the south, you get to see, when you don't have a lot of lights, you get to see the, the stars. Let me tell you something. Your HD television has never shown you anything more beautiful than that. I could almost feel them pressing down on me as we were looking at it. And all I could think of was, the heavens declare your glory. Night by night, they pour forth speech. There is nowhere, nowhere where their voice is not heard. All you can do is look up there and say, I know I didn't make this, someone else did. And if he made that, he made me. And he made me to ponder that he made that. And in doing so, as I ponder that, I fall down before on my knees and I say, glory to you. God has made himself known. We see it. It is futile to think that we can manipulate the world and make a God out of a manipulated world when he made the world. He says, no eye has seen a God besides you. When, when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal were, were calling on Baal to show himself, Elijah could stand there in peace and know it's never going to happen because the God you call upon has no ears. He has no hands to fashion fire. And so Isaiah just calls on the obvious. You're the only God who's ever shown himself. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. In other words, God vindicates himself by how we live our lives. When we take his word as truth and we live it out in our lives, we prove its infallibility. He says, behold, you were angry and we sinned. We've seen God's wrath in our sins. We have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like the polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses his arms to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. In other words, he's saying what you have proven in this moment, when he says you have hidden your face from us and made us melt in our iniquities, it is you have vindicated that your word is true by our rebellion. Paul says something similar in Romans 1. 
idolatry is itself its own penalty. The punishment for idolatry is that God gives you exactly what you ask. You want a God out of wood? Fine. Believe in him. See. See if his ways are greater than mine. And Isaiah says, by your wrath upon us, you have proven, we have proven your ways are right. We have proven your very existence, God. It says when you did awesome things, God created the world from nothing. He spoke and there was light. He separated the sky from the land, formed the heights of the mountains, and plumbed the depths of the sea. From his breath, mankind was given life, and in his image, human beings were crowned with dignity. If we do not bear the image of God, what dignity is there in man? What then separates us but a couple of molecules and a couple more amino acids in a DNA chain from an ape? We are nothing but animals. But God has crowned us with his glory. Even the atheist knows you can't get rid of God and go on pretending that man still has dignity. You can't get rid of God and go on pretending like life still has meaning and purpose. And Isaiah says we will prove this by how we live when we reject you. We will prove The meaningless pointlessness of life. But you did awesome things, God. You delivered Noah through the flood and the time before it had ever rained. You told Noah to build an ark. You promised that if he did and obeyed him, that he and his whole family would be saved. You sent plagues to Egypt that the Pharaoh might know that he alone is God. How else would the very prophet who speaks in a nation that was once great have the opportunity to do so unless God had sent plagues to thwart an Egyptian tyrant? How did we get to this point? They were slaves. There was no war against the Egyptians. History tells us that there was no uprising of the Jews. No, the beauty is that there are no arrows on the battlefield because two million slaves walked right out of Egypt because God brought down the Pharaoh to his knees. Where have you ever seen two million slaves walk away without fighting? And there were no lives lost. And Isaiah says, I wait upon you. I've seen you do it. You've done it. You've done mighty things. You let the Israelites pass through on dry land. You consumed our enemy with the wave. You revealed your glory at Sinai. And you gave the people the law of your covenant that if they lived by it, their days might be long in the land. It says, behold, you were angry and we sinned in our sins. We've been a long time and shall we be saved? Isaiah looks back at the history of mankind and sees that man's relationship to God is one that is characterized by 100% sinfulness. 
So not only does God act, but look at the way and look at whom God is acting. It's always God acting on us because we don't deserve it. Would you save us, he asked the question. But he already knows. You already have. You gave us your covenant. You, God, came and entered into an agreement with sinful people. What does he say? He says, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? It's rhetorical. The answer is yes. He says, we're unclean. Our righteous deeds are a polluted garment. The, the imagery there is, pardon me for a moment, but this is what the Bible says. It is a menstrual garment. So not only is it unclean, but it is ritualistically unclean. It is to show that you cannot be with God while you, you, even your righteousness, your righteousness, in other words, is a work of unrighteousness. That's what he's saying. <coughs> and unfortunately, our English translations miss that. He says not only that, but that we fade away like leaves. In other words, the curse of death is upon all mankind. No one lives forever. But in this respect, those of us, in this respect, those of us who live today, every human being has the exact same perspective of Isaiah. For we may look back down the halls of history from the time of Isaiah, even back to the beginning of the world, and say, all are unrighteous. There has never been a righteous human being born of man and woman. History proves it. And you know what I know? Every baby henceforth will be born in iniquity. Every baby henceforth is born sinful. Born in iniquity because he comes from sinful parents. There is no hope in ourselves. God must come. If we are to have salvation. But we also in a different way. Live in the days that Isaiah didn't live in. In the days after the Lord has come. Has lived among us. Has died for our sins. And has been raised to look back. We see the central point of history. The pinnacle of time. Unlike Isaiah we have seen God's salvation. We live in the days of victory. This table before you is a table of victory. In just a couple moments, we, we're going we're gonna to ask you, and it's just part of our liturgy, liturgy and I just haven't had an opportunity to really, to really uh, get at it and pick at it, but but it, there is something that I want to I want to talk to you just really quickly about this morning when we observe this Lord's Supper and we talk about that we we need to we need to be in meditation and we need to ask ourselves are we worthy? No, listen to me. No, you're not worthy. I'm gonna go ahead and answer you. You're not worthy. Just so you know that you're not worthy. The whole point to the supper. Is that you're not worthy. 
Because if you were worthy, you wouldn't need to eat of the flesh of the Savior or drink of his blood. So you're not worthy. This is a moment of victory. Where? In us? No. In Christ. In Christ. Every one of you who picks up his his little vial, his little cup, and drinks his blood or drinks the grape juice that symbolizes his blood or eats of the bread that symbolizes of his body, every one of you says, I am unworthy. You, Christ, were victorious on the cross. You were my Savior. If you can't say that because you don't believe it in your heart, listen to me, don't drink the cup. Don't eat the bread. I know, young man, that your mother's sitting next to you. But if you don't believe it, don't eat it. Just to make mom happy. But let me convince you. That right there is an appeal by your conscience. To be cleared of your sins by the body and blood of Christ Jesus. When you take it, know that you're living in the time of victory. You don't have to feel guilty for your sins anymore. You have been forgiven. There is therefore now, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation. To who? Because I'm certainly unworthy. And pastor, you just said all of us are unworthy. If all of us are unworthy, certainly it follows then that there should be condemnation. But there is therefore now no condemnation for who? For who? Those who are, very important preposition, in Christ Jesus. You know why Noah was saved? Because he was in the boat. That is just a placement preposition. Not outside the boat. In the boat. Probably playing tonk or spades or something like that. I don't know. But all I know is he was playing while everybody was going. You say, what's the difference between Noah and the other guy? The difference is one of location. Listen to me. It's one of location. The difference between you, lost person, and me, Christian, is that I'm inside Christ, and you're outside. You can make a decision. The door is open. He stands at the door knocking. And if you hear his voice this morning, come into him. He will come into you. And you and him, you will have your salvation. But while we live in the time of victory, we do not live in the day of consummation. While we live in the time of victory, we do not live in the time of consummation. See, if, if God is there, why do we still live? Why are, why are bad things still happening to good people? I know that's a hard question. Let me try and answer that just with a very simple answer. Because all things are not consummated yet. God has not come back. So what? So what must we do? 
listen to me, wait upon the Lord. You got cancer? Wait upon the Lord. You been fired from a job? Wait upon the Lord. You don't know where this country's going. You're worried that some guy in the Pacific Ocean might send a nuclear weapon and blow up one of our cities. That's a reality. You, you're worried about it so much so that the doctor's got you on Zoloft or Xanax and you're freaking out. Wait upon the Lord. You say, so what do you mean? Uh, just sit there and do nothing? No. No. You hope in the one who has shown his mighty things, as Isaiah has told us. You've done mighty things, and you're going to do it again. We look forward, verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. Think about that just for a moment. He is our Father, and then he says, you're a potter. Okay, so this is two things that can be said about God. He is your father, and he is the potter. He will make the clay. But let me tell you, those of you who had bad fathers, this is a perfect father. and He will mold you in goodness and in glory. But now, oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are you are our potter. He used the word our to make it personal because you're not just clay, you're a person. You're our potter. You are our father. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Make this appeal to him this morning as you take the blood and the bread. And remember, not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Who are his people? Who are the Lord's people? I said something rather controversial the other day. And I don't know how it was received. But I'm going to stick with it. You are not all God's children. Everyone will not be saved. Only those who wait upon the Lord will be saved. The prophet now looks forward to the future where God's mercy will cover his people. Notice that the terror of God's presence has not left. He says, be not so terribly angry. Still going to be an awesome sight. How can Isaiah then wait eagerly for the Lord's coming? He answers it in verse 431, and we just read it. Because he waits in the Lord. Paul said in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can read the whole chapter of Romans 8 today, it would be a blessing for you. Let that be your meditation, the entire chapter. But it goes like this. There is no, let me just give you a quick outline. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is suffering. But I am positive that that suffering will not separate us when you return. 
That's how the outline goes. We're living in a privileged time. We can say, when we take it, no condemnation. Condemnation was on you, Jesus. I'm in you, no condemnation for my sins. But suffering is still there. And Paul comforts us with these words, and I want to comfort you with them as we leave. What shall we say to these things, he asks. He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He, listen, he who did not. It's what he did in the past, just like Isaiah did, just like Isaiah told us. You did great things. He did not, says Paul, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He really did that back then, 2,000 years on a hill called Calvary. How then will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He goes from the past, perfect, completed, to the future. If he did this, if he didn't spare a son, how will he not also give you all things? So these, we're looking back, we're looking forward, right now, tough, but this is where our perspective should be. Looking back, looking forward. You did that with Christ, you're going to do it again. Yeah, it's really hard right now, but you did it with Christ, you're going to do it again. You gave me your son, you can give me all things. And this time in between is tough. That's what we wait upon. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed interceding for us right now? So now he moves into the present. At this very moment, the thing that keeps you out of the wrath of God is that Christ intercedes if you wait upon the Lord. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Those times are coming, Americans. Times of tribulation are coming. Will that separate you from God? No. Because you wait upon the Lord. What about distress? What about persecution? What about famine or nakedness or danger? Or sword or war? No. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, what Paul is saying is, don't be surprised when tribulation comes, Christian. This is the time between the times. But that's not where you get preoccupied. No. Wait upon the Lord. He says, no. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is a promise worth waiting on. Let's pray. God, we wait upon you. Everything you ever said you did, we're going to take of the cup 
and eat of the body, drink of the cup in just a moment, and we're going to say in that moment, you did this for me, what you have done. But we wait upon you again for the consummation of all things. We know, Lord Jesus, you will return. And we wait upon you to come to the earth again. This time not in a manger, but as a king riding on a horse to judge the quick and the dead. Amen. Would you stand with us?